Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Kelsey Henry. And I'm Caroline Liefers. And today, it's our great pleasure to be in conversation with Lisa I. Iazzoni, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She is based at the Health Policy Research Center, Mongan Institute at Massachusetts General Hospital, where she was a director from 2009 to 2018. Dr. Iazzoni, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you too. Thank you. So to start, can you tell us a little bit more about how you ended up where you are now? Uh, an MD, a professor, a health policy expert, so many different hats uh, with expertise in disability issues. How did you get here? Sure, well, given my age, I'm like a history lesson on its own. <laughs> so was a medical anthropology major at Duke. I had no interest in going to medical school, but this was back in the mid 1970s and health policy at the time was actually really exciting. Um, people like Ted Kennedy were talking about universal health insurance and you know, there was just a sense that we needed to get costs under control. And Duke had an amazing health policy program. And so I did that. And um, based on my experiences there, I decided to go to Harvard School of Public Health to get a master's of science in health policy. And so I moved to Boston in 1976. And that is when I started to have these little kind of eerie sensations in my body, which I was 22, I was young, I was invincible. They would come, they would go, I wouldn't pay attention to them. I was really just so um, excited about my master's program, but I also at that time met some incredible doctors who said, Lisa, why don't you consider medical school? Well, one reason is I hadn't done any of the pre-med requirements. Um, you know, for my science at Duke, I did rocks for jocks and I'd done biology because I thought that was fun. And I tortured my, you know, pre-med classmates there. Um, but I finally kind of made a little yellow pad of paper with a line down the middle and the pros and cons of going to medical school. And I finally kind of decided that the pros really exceeded the cons. And so I went back, did special, you know, student pre-med kind of thing and um, got into Harvard Medical School where I started in September of 1980. So quite a few years ago, but notably 10 years before the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. And once I got to medical school, things started happening with me. Um, you know, I started bumping into trees while I would walk down streets or bump into cars. And finally, these sensations that I was having just couldn't be ignored anymore. And so I was able to get an appointment with a neurologist during my final exam week for a semester at Harvard Medical School. And the neurologist, who is still a close personal friend, was very calm and very kind and said, look, Lisa, given what you've told us, you sound like you have a classic history of multiple sclerosis, but come back in January and we'll do some tests. He didn't tell me how awful they were gonna be, but MRI scanners were not kind of invented for patients at that time. So 
I came back in January, had a series of terrible tests that basically ruled out things like a brain tumor. And so I was diagnosed with MS at the um, beginning of my second semester at medical school. Um, this was a period of time when you never talked about private things like your health. I mean, this was pre-Oprah Winfrey. It was pre-Facebook. You know, it was pre-before even women would talk about having breast cancer. That was viewed as kind of embarrassing. And so I didn't talk about it. Um, the medical school made some accommodations for me um, in terms of like not making me stay up 72 consecutive hours like happened back in the early 1980s, but um, it was pretty tough being there at medical school at the time. Um, people were not especially um, nice to me. And um, in uh, May of uh, 1983, when I was thinking of applying for an internship or residency, I went to one of the dinners that Harvard Medical School arranged for their students, um, you know, cheese cubes and sherry, and then you'd have dinner with professors or kind of major people at the medical school. And I happened to sit next to a very tall man who was the head of one of the major academic medical centers affiliated with Harvard Medical School. And I described my situation and I said, you know, could I maybe do a halftime residency at your medical school or can there be some accommodations for me? And he said, after pausing, you know, there are too many doctors in the country right now for us to think about training a quote, handicapped physician, if that means that some people get left by the wayside, so be it. And so I wasn't surprised that when I went to meet with my internship advisor in July of, of 1983, he said that the powers that be at Harvard Medical School had decided not to write a letter of recommendation for me to apply to um, an, an internship or residency that would allow me to be board certified. So I needed to find a job um, and I did um, through the help of the Dean at the Harvard School of Public Health, who kindly picked up the phone and called a friend. And I became a research assistant at BU um, in uh, July of 1984, right after graduating from Harvard Medical School. But, you know, I had my training in health policy, and it was a great time to do health policy in the early 1980s. There were a lot of policy changes in Medicare. And I just doggedly started doing health policy research. I had been told, you know, or taught by my medical school experiences never to talk about the fact that I had a disability. And so when I started using a wheelchair in 1988, I didn't talk about it. Um, and I just published paper after paper after paper. Um, I was a classic case of overcompensation. And so in 1990, Harvard Medical School recruited me back. Um, I became an assistant professor there and rose to the rank of full professor in 1998. Um, and I realized at that point, you know, I was actually, I mean, this sounds arrogant, but this is kind of the truth is that I was the first woman in the Department of Medicine to be promoted to professor at 
the hospital where I was, which was Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And so I figured it would be kind of hard for them to fire me at this point. And it also occurred to me that not talking about my disability was just perpetuating the stigmatization. You know, maybe now I had arrived enough that I could talk publicly about it. And so in the late 1990s, I decided what would be meaningful for me to do research on. And for reasons that I won't go into, I, you know, decided that this was a really good focus. I dusted off my medical anthropology credentials, this time kind of as a participant observer. And my first research project was actually visiting people with progressive mobility disability to learn about their lived experiences in their homes and what the healthcare system was like for them. And I became kind of an expert in disability disparities, which I have been researching now for nearly 25 years. And so that's, again, I'm kind of older, so that's why it took so long for me to describe my history. But that is kind of, um, you know, Kelsey, an answer to your question about how I landed where I am now. Thank you so much for sharing what is, amounts to such a sprawling life history with us. Um, you've traveled so many places professionally and personally. And I know that the both of us are so grateful that you ended up in health policy and you ended up writing the books that you've written. Um, but I do wanna pause for a moment on the part of the story that you were telling about the ways that you were directed away from a career as, as a doctor in medicine. Um, because it made me think about uh, just a little bit of backstory that relates to the way that I entered into your work, Lisa. I used to be a care worker. Um, oh. Yeah, I was a personal attendant um, for a woman with cerebral palsy um, in my late teens. And then I worked as a doula for several years. Yes. Mm. So I am absolutely fascinated by the, the history that you you've devoted so much time to telling and it's such an important history. But one thing that I noticed that relates a little bit to the story you were telling about the reasons why you were excluded from a career in medicine was that there was a lot of exclusion of uh, doulas with disabilities when I was working in the field because of the long hours and how like physically grueling and demanding it was. And I remember thinking what a profound shame that we are not thinking more comprehensively about how to make clinical positions or care positions that have to do with the care and keeping of human bodies, um, not making those positions more accessible to people with vast and varied experiences with embodiment, because wouldn't they be incredible care providers if we supported them and it's something that I reflected a lot about as a care worker. And that was just coming up for me when you were talking. Well, Kelsey, first of all, I had no idea that you were a care worker. When um, I, I knew that you were reading my book, what a profound thing for me to be able to learn from you about how you kind of reacted to the stories that I told. Um, you know, it is still the truth that because of technical standards requirements for getting into medical schools, it's very hard, especially in American medical schools. It's a little bit different overseas 
for people with disabilities to join the medical profession. Let me just say that, um, you know, the era that I'm talking about was 10 years before the Americans with Disabilities Act. You know, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 was in effect, but nobody really talked about it. I don't remember it being mentioned at all at the time. And let me say that I didn't take this entirely sitting down. Um, before, you know, when I was told by my um, at my advisor that they were not going to um, to write a letter for me, there there were two things that I'll mention to you. Um, the first is that they said that what they were willing to do was pass the hat to other departments of medicine to see whether they could come up with donations for a salary that they could support a position that would not be board eligible for me. And they had done that and they came up with a salary of $3,000. And at the time, you know, a starting intern salary was $26,000. I couldn't live on $3,000. And so I'm told that this is officially kind of um, uh, constructive uh, uh, dismissal or, or there's a specific legal term for this. Um, that they didn't outright fire me, but they basically made it so impossible for me to continue that I kind of slank, you know, slunk away. But again, I didn't make a final decision until I spoke to a man named Charlie McCabe. And the story that I'm going to tell you is a story that I tell you with his permission. And um, he was about to be the chief resident in surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital, which in the early 1980s was considered akin to becoming God. You know, if you rise to the position of chief resident in surgery, you are God. But he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and became quite impaired by it. And so he himself, was unable to continue as a chief resident in surgery. And I had run across him when I had done clerkships at the MGH and had seen him rolling around the emergency department in his scooter. And so I thought, okay, before I um, say absolutely not, I'm gonna slink away, let me go talk to Dr. McCabe and see if he can give me some advice. And so I made an appointment with him. And the reason why I say that I got his permission to tell this story is that what I'm about to say is gonna be more about him than it is about me and about what his experiences were like. And he, um, sadly, I had no idea he was as ill as he was, died about three weeks after I got his permission. But I, I went to him and I said, you know, Dr. McCabe, here's my story. What would you advise me to do? And he said to me, if there's anything else you could do, you should do it. Because they will never, ever believe with your disability that you can be a competent physician. So, you know, here's a man who is about to be God, who had the experience where obviously 
he felt that nobody ever respected his ability to be competent. He was a beloved educator, you know, education awards, teaching awards were named after him. But that's when I said, okay, you know, I, this is just not going to happen for me. There's so much history, history enclosed in your life. And I know you were making kind of a joke of that, that you embody so much history. I'm officially a senior citizen, but I hate that phrase. <laughs> so <laughs> it's important for those of us who were there at the time um, to really talk about it um, because we don't want this history to be lost. Yeah. So there are wonderful people like Judy Human who write books about, you know, her own life and what that was like, you know, um, that we learned so much from. I know that our listeners will really enjoy hearing about your life history alongside uh, our conversation of this phenomenal book. Um, So this will be an extra treat for them to uh, listen to this podcast about your book and also get to learn a little bit um, like from oral, oral history about disability and the medical profession too. So that's really a gift. You know, again, I felt like it was important for me to start speaking publicly because I didn't want to perpetuate the stigmatization, but, you know, the stigmatization still persists in medical places. And I don't know whether you experienced that yourself now where you are in your training in your own life, Um, but it's still there. It's better but it isn't yet erased. I'd love to transition and hear a little bit more about your book. We've recently read your latest, Making Their Days Happen, Paid Personal Assistance Services Supporting People with Disability Living in Their Homes and Communities, which was published by Temple University Press earlier this year. Big congratulations. It's such an impressive book. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in this topic and how that interest turned into this book? Let me just preface this by saying it might be kind of a little dangerous to be one of my friends because I tend to get research ideas from watching what is happening to my friends or are my colleagues in the disability community more broadly. Um, you know, so this really comes from um, my best friend, um, whose name is Michael, who I met back in 2009 when my scooter died. And that is kind of mentioned in the dedication to the book. I dedicated the book to both Michael and Nalita, who um, is his longest serving personal care assistant. Um, Michael lives in Princeton Junction, New Jersey. He was a 55 when we met um, and had had primary progressive MS since age 42 and had to retire at age 50 because of his severe and progressive disability. At the time we met, Michael was completely quadriplegic with only a tiny bit of right hand function. Um, He had divorced a while before we met and moved into his own home alone, Um, but he'd done lots of research on how to make this this very modest but accessible home um, as accessible to him as possible. Um, And he spent most of his retirement savings on adapting the new home, for example, making structural changes within it when possible and putting in assistive technologies like ceiling mounted lift devices. 
But on his fixed income, he only had enough money for three hours of personal care assistance supports per day from 6 to 7.30 every morning and from 9.30 to 11 o'clock at night, um, which he got from one of those kind of franchise personal assistance services agencies that have sprung up nationwide and have kind of warm and fuzzy names. Um, so during the day, he would sometimes actually go without food or water from 7.30 in the morning to 9.30 at night. And I live in Bo outside of Boston. And so I witnessed this from 250 miles away. And I wondered how I could help. I thought, you know, here I'm supposedly this health policy person. I should know what to do to help Michael. But once I started kind of researching policies around PAS, personal assistance services, um, I quickly found that there were few options for someone like Michael, who at the time had only Medicare coverage and did not have family or friends to serve as the unpaid or informal care providers that provide about 75% of the PAS in, in our country. So of course I said, okay, I need to research this and understand it better. So I went out and tried to get a grant to study the issue and um, was fortunate that the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation generously funded me to conduct what they wanted was a policy th synthesis concerning paid PAS. But I told them that if I did this, I really wanted to understand the experiences of receiving and providing PAS. And so they permitted me to use some of the resources to conduct interviews, um, which have led to this book. Thank you so much for that origin story. And we're going to have more questions about Michael and the interview process in just a minute. But before we move into that, I was hoping we could talk just a little bit about terminology, kind of get that sorted out before we move much further. You use the term, we just heard you say it, right? Personal assistance services or personal assistance in your book. But of course, I'm sure our audience members uh, and you know myself also have used terms like home care workers or carers or personal care attendants and many other permutations. So how did you settle on your preferred choice of terminology? And does this term that you use personal assistance have any precise legal definitions or boundaries? Okay, that's a great question. And at the end of my introduction, I actually have a section called Note on Language, because you're absolutely right. The language um, is really, really essential, not just for describing what people do, but also um, the kind of respect and, and where they are in terms of, um, of the kind of stigmatization that is perpetuated around both disability and this type of work. Um, so terminology in this area differs a lot regionally, both within the United States and around the world. And so I debated about what term to use um, systematically throughout this book. And so I decided based on all these interviews, I would let one of the interviewees tell me. And so um, I gave everybody except Michael and Alita, who gave me permission to use their real names. Um, I gave them pseudonyms. And so I'm going to talk about what a very compelling interviewee who I call Natalie told me. And Natalie is in her early 50s. She has spinal muscular atrophy 
And she has eight PAs who provide in-home 80-hour activities of daily living supports each week. And so what Natalie said to me was, quote, a lot of people refer to these workers as a personal care assistant. I'm not fond of the idea that they take care of me. I like the idea that they assist me in taking care of myself. So I tend to use personal assistant. So I thought, okay, Natalie, you told me that's what I'm going to call it. And so in certain places in the book, though, I use local terminology, um, like where Michael lives, um, these personal care assistants or PAS workers are called home health aides or HHAs. And so there is no universal terminology. Um, legal definitions tend to happen once people need certain certificates or licenses or specific degrees to provide these services. And there are people who have thought about career advancement for personal assistance, but that is not yet true in the United States for PAs. That may be different in other parts of the world, but, um, but that kind of certification, certificates or training is not yet something that's universally adopted in the United States. Thank you so much for that answer. That's really clarifying, especially for those of us who don't live in the U.S. and may not be as familiar with the landscape. So thank you. And then there's kind of an associated question, which I'm sure our audience has already anticipated. And that is, what is the preferred term that you landed on for the clients or consumers of these services? Because uh, I suppose some people might use the word patients, although that's not a preferred option. Uh, supervisors or uh, perhaps employers could be an option in some cases. So talk to us a little bit about your process of working through that terminology. Yeah, that, that's another great question. And so I settled on the word consumer, um, and but it also took thought. And as you say, Caroline, Patience is a non-starter for me because that's so medicalized and people aren't patients when they're sitting in their homes and just living their daily lives or going out in the community. Um, so certainly some of the agencies that provide PAS call their clients patients, but that was not what I was going to do. So it may not be a great word, but I settled on consumers because it has been used by the government and policymakers in the context of consumer self-directed personal assistance services. So consumer self-directed personal assistance services actually started in the 1970s in my neck of the woods. Um, Boston, the Boston Center for Independent Living was the second um, CAL um, that was created in the United States after the one in Berkeley, um, BCIL started in 1974. And it was the first, um, uh, instance where BCIL um, consumers worked with Massachusetts Medicaid to start consumer-directed personal assistance services. And so that's why I decided, decided on the word consumer for this. Although, as you say, for consumer-directed, self-directed services, often the word employer or supervisor might be used. Thanks so much for that point of clarification, Lisa. Uh, we'd love to get into the composition of this book because it's so 
so vast and doing so many things really well. Um, you have history, you have in-depth personal stories, you are writing about policy, you document day-to-day -day issues that personal assistants and people with disabilities experience in relation to each other. Um, but one of the things that we found most impressive and deeply moving was that you brought us into contact with so many stories of people um, who are involved in these care networks. In some cases, it's just a brief glimpse, uh, like the account of one personal assistant who was concerned about working in a home with bed bugs. But sometimes it's much more in depth looking at someone's life, like the stories of your friend, Michael, like Fred's story, people who use personal assistant services and have a wealth of knowledge and experience and so many thoughts to share. Was it really important for you to center these people and their perspectives in your book? And how did you decide on taking that approach? Um, absolutely. Um, Kelsey, it was foundational for me. Um, there's just an authenticity that comes with the actual voice of people and their stories. Um, and you get those little aha moments, like the bed bug story. <laughs> I mean, you're probably going to remember that. Um, because it just like, oh my gosh, I had never thought about that, but now I think about that. Um, and for my healthcare disparities work with people with disabilities, I've done probably more than 300 interviews. I've done projects on cancer care, on primary care, on pregnancy care. Um, and, um, and, I always try to publish qualitative research articles where the voice of the people who I interviewed is the primary source of data that I use in those publications. And so this is just how I've chosen to kind of write about this ever since my book about progressive walking problems that came out in 2003. Um, it's just the way that I I just feel comfortable talking about this is giving the people who are generous enough to tell me their stories, the voice to tell their own stories. Yeah. Well, this mode of writing is extremely compelling. There's an immediacy to it and an urgency to it. Um, that is really, um, that's really provocative and I'm sure uh, supplements policy work, uh, like for a number of readers, like policymakers, historians, care workers. I don't know if you've thought about kind of when you're imagining your audience, like all of these different audiences. Um, but I think that the way that you tell stories by bringing in the voices of uh, personal assistance and uh, the consumers or clients that are making use of their services and intercutting that with uh, histories of like policy making makes your book so appealing to so many different readers. And I know that I was really impressed by that. Um, well, the voices are just in my head, you know, um, Kelsey, and, and I just hear them. I get that. I get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering then, how did you manage to gather all of these stories and what did that gathering process look like? Um, 
Did any ethical or privacy issues come up as you were interviewing people about really the intimate inner workings of their day-to-day -day life and their bodies? Uh, can you talk us through that process a little bit? Yeah, you're right. I, I was pretty bold. I asked people about very intimate things um, in this in these interviews. Um, okay, so um, I again have done these kind of interviews for probably twenty five years now, um, and I I have found that people who I'm talking to, especially the people with disabilities are so willing to tell their stories and so generous in telling their stories um, because they often haven't been heard and they want their voices heard and they kind of view me as a way to get their voices heard. Um, so uh, of course I have to be realistic. So um, Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation again, generously funded me, but I only had limited dollars that I had to conduct um, the interview component of the project. And so I was just aiming to do about 20 interviews. So I ended up doing 21 consumer interviews and 20 personal assistant interviews from various spots around the country. Um, I did most of the interviews by telephone. I did a few in Boston area in person. Um, I was able to find these people through my own network um, and also working with collaborators on the project, notably PHI, which is an organization based in New York that advocates for direct care workers. They were really helpful in helping me find especially um, personal assistance. Um, and my project manager, Naomi Gallopin, was wonderful. Um, she assisted with the recruitment process and um, we indicated to the interviewees that the interviews would take up to two hours, but they could stop at any time. And typically the consumers wanted to talk. And um, those interviews did go on for about two hours. Um, the PA interviews typically for only about an hour. Um, this was a research project. And so we needed to get permission from our institutional review board, um, which you know they required a review of my interview protocol. But before I turned on my digital recorder, I told people about protecting their privacy, that I would assign them a pseudonym, that I would not identify specific locations, and that I would change small details about them, like, you know, the number of siblings they might have or their specific career goals. Um, and in thanks, we provided a $50 gift card to them. Um, unfortunately, I'm like a lot of Americans. I speak one language. Um, I speak English. Um, so I could not do interviews in Spanish, which is a real issue because a lot of personal assistants are immigrants and not native English speakers. And so that is one regret. Well, since this is the Disability History Association podcast, I suppose we should ask you some questions that are more specifically about history, although I've, I've so enjoyed our conversation so far. One of the key issues that your book brings up is how domestic and companionship services were exempted from federal labor regulations that govern most other work. So these are things like minimum wage or overtime protections. How did this happen? And then what are the consequences for PAs and folks who use their services, their consumers? Well, the quick answer to your First question about how it happened is clear. 
and that is racism and sexism. Um, so there's really a long history that goes back to the arrival of the first European settlers in the continent of, of North America. And um, then later, shortly later, the transportation of enslaved people that contributed to where we found ourselves in the early 20th century that I describe in the book, but won't spend as much time on here as I do there. The bottom line was that PAS was always viewed as women's work, not requiring skill and not necessarily requiring compensation. In households, for example, it was assumed that women would you know, provide these services. It was just simply expected of them. So, you know, if we zip forward um, to the 1930s and the Great Depression, um, the public face of the Great Depression was largely unemployed men. Nevertheless, poor women who had subsisted during domestic labor also suffered widespread job losses. So the New Deal's Works Progress Administration, or WPA, had programmed policies that aimed to preserve traditional gender and racial roles. And the WPA, for example, supported just one worker per family, and typically that was the male breadwinner. However, for women, they created something called the New Deal Visiting Housekeeper Program that offered women employment um, and provided crucial income and support to free, typically white women, from the demands of housework and caring for sick household members. And during its existence, the WPA supported about 38,000 housekeeping jobs across 45 states and the District of Columbia, providing the major source of work relief for Black women. Now, what was interesting is that Southern employers complained that these housekeeping jobs paid more than textile and agricultural work, and therefore, quote unquote, caused labor shortages, undermining the racial caste system. Um, there was also kind of this little issue that they required the people who were participating in this um, visiting housekeeper program to undergo syphilis testing. Um, so the, um, the women who would be coming into the homes would be officially um, clear of this health scourge of syphilis and thus protect the white household. So um, alongside the New Deal programs to actually provide jobs, um, President Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, sought also broad policy changes to increase low wages, although the Supreme Court at the time had been really brutal about that. He found that after his 1936 landslide victory, he and his labor secretary, Francis Perkins, thought that they could negotiate some legislation that could actually survive constitutional challenges and get through the Supreme Court of the time. But even in that, they had to face staunch opposition from Southern legislators who fought efforts to extend labor protections to domestic and agricultural workers. So Roosevelt's ultimate strategy linked labor protections to interstate commerce, where the federal government has regulatory authority in the United States. So with these restrictions and the failure to cover domestic and agricultural workers, the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act, 
or FLSA, covered just about 20% of workers nationwide, including only 14% of female workers and very few Black workers. So the phrase domestic workers has changed and evolved over time. It's encompassed a heterogeneous group of occupations um, that generally include people like maids and housekeepers, cooks, babysitters, home health aides, personal care aides, companions, caretakers, handymen, gardeners, chauffeurs. Um, but what happened in World War II um, was that there were these new industrial jobs that white women especially could partake in. And so they happily left domestic service for more regular hours, greater independence and higher wages. And so by 1970, only about 5% of women workers performed domestic jobs and the vast majority of them were women of color. Um, in the 1960s and early 1970s, the civil rights movement and women's rights movements kind of intersected around protecting domestic labor. And by 1971, the Household Technicians of America, for example, included dozens of locally based organizations made up largely of poor Black women, some immersed in the civil rights movement. And they organized to protest the conditions of domestic work in which employers had overwhelming power, abuse was common, and mistreatment generally took place behind closed doors. So in 1974, Congress decided to amend the Federal Labor Standards Act, the FLSA, increasing the minimum wage and expanding the categories of protected workers. Finally, they included domestic workers, but there was one exception, and that was people providing so-called companionship services. I don't know how they came up with this, but the amendment, the amended law stated that minimum wage requirements would not apply to workers who, quote, provide companionship services for individuals who, because of age or infirmity, are unable to care for themselves. And the law viewed personal assistance as companions. So in 1975, when writing regulations to implement the, F the um, FLSA 1974 amendments, the Department of Labor policymakers interpreted companionship exemption broadly to include almost all workers who provided personal care and household services to older and disabled people. And the Department of Labor also extended these exemptions to include workers who were employed by third parties, like home care agencies. So workers who had actually already been included in wage and work hour protections before the passage of the 1974 amendments. So these regulatory regulate interpretations thus led to the exclusion of hundreds of thousands of domestic workers from basic wage and work hour protections. So the companionship exemption though catalyzed home care workers to organize and contest these regulations. And in the 1980s unions like the Service Employees International Union began recruiting home care workers, including many who were paid by Medicaid reasoning that they would have a strong collective bargaining position. So in his next to last day in office in January of 2001, the Clinton administration proposed rules to give home care workers wage and work hour protections. But the incoming George W. Bush administration jettisoned this proposal arguing it would be too costly.
<sighs> okay, that is a very sobering and may I also say frustrating <laughs> history. Thank you, of course, for, for explaining that. But my goodness, I mean, I'm sure our audience is, um, yeah, uh, reckoning with a lot right now, just having heard about all of that. Thank you. G can you explain where Evelyn Koch comes into the story? She has a really important role to play here, I know. And can you tell us about who she is and what her contribution is? Okay, thank you. Yes, Evelyn Cope was a personal assistant, a PAS worker, who brought a lawsuit for wage and work hour protections that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where she resoundingly lost. But subsequent legal actions building upon her case finally led to FLSA protections for PAS workers. So briefly, Evelyn Cope was born in Jamaica, in 1934, she worked there providing home care. She moved to the United States in 1970, living in Florida and Maryland and still doing home care before settling in New York City. And she worked long hours and she was very frugal, but she didn't get overtime pay. But her home care earnings, which she saved, finally allowed her in 1973 to bring her children to the United States and in 1980 to buy a wood frame house in Queens on Long Island where she lived until her death in 2009. Now, in April of 2002, Evelyn Koch sued her former employer, Long Island Care at Home, arguing that it had not paid her the minimum wage and overtime pay required by New York state law and the Federal Labor Standards Act. Koch's lawsuit questioned whether Congress had truly intended to exempt home care agency workers and whether the US Department of Labor had correctly interpreted the law in specifying the companionship exemption. After various lower court rulings, Koch's um, case rose to the US Supreme Court with oral arguments in April of 2007. In court, the Long Island Care at Home Agency asserted that being required to pay overtime would impose, quote, tremendous and unsustainable losses. And in a friend of the court brief, New York City estimated that paying overtime to home care workers would increase its Medicaid costs by $250 million annually, threatening that massive services cuts would follow. On June 11, 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously against Koch. And addressing the narrow question, though, of whether the Department of Labor had absolute authority to issue the 1974 FLSA regulations exempting home care workers, and all nine justices found that the Department of Labor had that authority. However, the unanimous 2007 Supreme Court ruling against Koch galvanized home care workers once again to pressure Congress to enact labor protections for this essential workforce. And in August of 2007, the Service Employees International Union organized a home care visit for guess who? Presidential candidate Barack Obama to show him firsthand what home care workers do. Obama spent from six o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock in the morning in Oakland, California, shadowing a 61-year-old home care worker while she assisted an 86-year-old man receiving round-the-clock home care. 
She instructs, instructed Obama in lifting, bathing, and dressing her client and helping with food preparations. And Obama was really, really struck by this and by his conversations with this worker. And he announced that he would end the FLSA home care worker exemption if he became president. It took many more years and more court cases, a convoluted story that I won't go into now, for these changes to finally occur. Um, but the concept of companionship services does remain, but its definition now has been considerably narrowed. So given the nature of what they do, PAS workers now fall outside this narrowed definition of companionship services. So it wasn't until a 2016 U.S. Supreme Court case that ruled that protecting PAS workers could take effect. So they now have FLSA protections, but what has happened and what some of the, um, the PAS workers who I interviewed told me is that payers began capping the work weeks of home care workers to 35 hours or less thus preventing them from getting time and a half overtime pay and limiting their potential income. And these work hour restrictions have raised concerns about reducing personal assistance quality for consumers. So getting basic labor protection for these workers remains an unfinished business and really has not necessarily achieved what the goals, intended goals were. Wow, Lisa. Such a fascinating history, such a frustrating history. And you were able to cover so much ground in a relatively short amount of time, very clearly. Um, I feel like I just learned so much. I couldn't help but think as someone who perseverates on language a lot, going back to what we were talking about earlier about different associations or like connotations that the folks that you interviewed had with uh, the language of care or attendant, um, the complexities that come along with terminology that came up for me again when you were talking about um, this language of uh, companionate service mm -hmm. um, in, in policymaking. And again, thinking about gender here, and the way that gender interfaces with an informal care economy. Um, there's so much to be said for the power of language, um, the way that by, by calling a particular kind of labor companionate, or even like falling back on this language of care is often feminizing and is often um, a road for delegitimizing that labor as labor that's deserving of compensation. A absolutely. And there's a history to that word. And it's also a racialized history that um, the policymakers at the time, you know, many decades ago, thought of companions as typically women who would go into the homes of genteel white women and just kind of hang out with them, have a cup of tea, you know, prepare their meals make sure that their hair was done properly. And the idea of the policymakers was that these quote unquote companions were doing this kind of almost as a labor of love. It wasn't really labor. They were basically providing friendship services 
And they couldn't possibly be the sole wage earners for their families, could they be? You know, they were companions. And so there's this long kind of racialized and genderized um, history to that word that you picked up on. Staying on this topic of disability history and policy, if you could tell us a little bit more about Olmstead versus Elsie, um, which is another big turning point in the history that you're describing, can you talk us through this case a little bit and explain its significance? Yes. Um, for people outside the U.S., um, the major um, disability civil rights law um, that covered both public and private services was the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act. And I actually view the 1999 U.S. Supreme Court in Olmstead v. L.C. as probably the seminal case that came from Olmstead or from the ADA, but that might just be my perspective. Um, it had profound implications for deinstitutionalization and community-based living. So the opposing sides in this case were Tommy Olmstead, who was the commissioner of the Georgia Department of Human Resources, and two women, Lois Curtis, LC, and Elaine Wilson, who were inpatients at the Georgia Rehabilitation Hospital Psychiatric Unit. Both women had mental illness, and developmental disability and had agreed initially to admission to the state-run hospital. Now, the ADA has several provisions um, within it. For example, um, section, well, I won't go into what the section number is, but there's a section um, that states, quote unquote, um, physical or mental disabilities in no way diminish a person's right to fully participate in all aspects of society. And a later section asserts the goal to, quote, assure equality of opportunity, full participation, independent living, and economic self-sufficiency of people with disabilities. And um, it was the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg who wrote the opinion, and she partially relied on these concepts in the ADA in writing the U.S. Supreme Court's 1999 decision that held that under ADA, Title II, states cannot confine people with disabilities to institutions, that people with disabilities have the civil right to live within communities with appropriate supports should they wish to do so, in this case, funded by public insurance Medicaid. Like so much of the history that you've discussed with us today, um, that translation point or the thoroughness with which policy is translated into practice is really unfinished. Um, in the story that you're telling. So even if Olmstead was really important in principle, there have been profound challenges um, in its translation into the day-to-day -day lives of personal assistance serv services and consumers, people with disabilities who are interfacing with this kind of care. How did this show up in your research? Yeah, well, I saw it in my research, but it's also embedded within the Olmstead decision itself. And that is because Olmstead happened within the context of Georgia Medicaid. And Medicaid, as people may know, is the joint federal and state health insurance program for poor people. Um, and the US Supreme Court recognized that it actually had no jurisdiction over how states spend 
Medicaid dollars. Now, Medicaid is now in the United States the last resort for thousands of people who cannot afford a home and community-based services. Um, but gaining Medicaid coverage is often difficult. It varies across states because there are some states that have very stringent entitlement uh, criteria. But in the mid-1970s, personal care or personal assistance services became an optional benefit for Medicaid. Um, the 1981 Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act introduced something called the Section 1915C waiver, which permitted state Medicaid programs to cover home and community-based services, including personal care, homemakers, home health aides, and respite for family caregivers. And so the way that this came up in my project was that interviewees in different states had different levels of Medicaid, PAS benefits, and payment structures. So because the Supreme Court does not have budgetary authority over how state Medicaid programs spend their dollars, um, it suggested, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg suggested in her opinion, that putting Medicaid beneficiaries on waiting lists for home and community-based services would be acceptable if this would not generate lengthy delays. So, but as I just said, you know, home and community-based services for Medicaid vary substantially across states and enrollment spending reflecting different states' choices about whether they wanna use a 1915C waiver, for example. And so, for example, in 2016, Mississippi put 27% of its Medicaid long-term services and supports funding on home-based and community-based services, while Oregon allocated 81% of its Medicaid long-term services and supports dollars on home and community-based services. So Mississippi 27%, Oregon 81%. So even in those states that prioritize these services, there can be long waiting lists. One study showed recently you know, waiting lists from a year to 14 years across states. And recent estimates suggest that Medicaid home and community-based services waiting lists under waiver authorities total over about 820,000 people. So again, the Olmstead decision did not indicate what would constitute an unacceptable waiting period. Um, and so because there are these waiting lists, because there is not enough funding for home and community-based services, even though we have Olmstead, it may not actually be having an effect for literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with disabilities out there across the country. And the National Council on Disability in February of um, 2022 released what they called their health equity framework. And they have made a number of recommendations, but one of the recommendations that they made was that the Department of Justice more vigorously enforce the ADA integration mandate under Olmstead um, because it hasn't really yet come to pass as originally envisioned in the original ruling. Thank you so much for that incredibly comprehensive and um, clear answer to our question. And I, I just have to say, this is 
why we are so grateful that your work exists, right? For just helping to reinforce um, the, the stories of people who are fighting their way through the system and um, helping us, I think, appreciate the, the need to continue to advocate for change. So thank you just so much for, for all that you do. This is a, a bit of a big question. <laughs> so I, I apologize for um, the, the capaciousness of it, but you've described our current system maybe system's not even the right word, we might go with patchwork or dysfunction uh, when it comes to personal assistance services. What do you think that the state of the system right now says about our values and our priorities as a society? It's such a great question, um, Caroline, and it's a societal question, isn't it? Um, that we as a society, basically since our nation's founding, have not had a sense of communal responsibility for ensuring the lives and dignity of all citizens the way that some other countries have. And so depending on a person's support needs, um, this kind of support, personal assistance services, is just too expensive for most Americans. And seemingly intractable actuarial costs, political and other problems have really sunk efforts to develop a public health insurance for long-term supportive services. Some of you might remember, although it was so fleeting that you might not, that part of the Affordable Care Act that Obama administration passed in 2010 included something called the CLASS Act, which was community living assistance services and supports my late Senator Ted Kennedy, it was one of his kind of goals um, for Congress to achieve kind of a long-term services and support insurance program, but it was jettisoned by the Obama administration as part of negotiation with the Republican Congress several years later to get the budget done. So although the United States has signed, it hasn't yet ratified the 2006 United Nations Convention on the rights of persons with disabilities, which as recently has been ratified by 185 other nations around the world. And the thing that's different about the UN um, CRPD is that it has positive rights embedded within it rather than negative rights. And what I mean by that is that in the United States, disability rights are framed in a negative that the ADA prohibits discrimination against people with disability. In contrast, the positive rights embedded within the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability affirm that people should have healthcare. That's a positive right. You know, Article 19, the title of Article 19 of the UN CRPD is, quote, living independently and being included in the community and a cause for in-home supportive services, including personal assistance. And there's multiple other articles within the UNCRPD that describe components, positive rights, such as Article 30, participation in cultural life, recreation and leisure and sport. And so I just think that, you know, in our country, the United States, it just has not been part of our national ethos to feel that we have communal responsibility, as I said, to ensure the dignity of all citizens. I had never thought about that framing before of 
negative and positive rights, um, like formulations of rights in a negative or po positive valence and the way that in a US American context, disability rights are disproportionately framed negatively. Um, and how, how exactly as you're saying, that's demonstrative of a larger cultural and social ethos. I had never considered that before. So it isn't me, it's lawyers that I've studied who taught me that. <laughs> yeah, it's really it, it, is, it, it, it took me a while to figure it out too, but it's absolutely foundational. Well, if Caroline's last question was about the current state of affairs with personal assistance services, this question is also a big one about change and the future. So a lot of disability history fans are familiar with this really awful Medicaid social security catch 22, um, at least in part because of Paul Longmore's work, um, very famously burned copies of his book because the income from that would disqualify him from essential social security benefits. So even though some of these policies have been amended um, in the story that you told, some of these same problems, the same catch 22 came up for Fred. So Fred wants to be a physics professor, but his income would be too high and disqualify him for public funding for his PAS, but too low to actually afford to pay those PAS out of his own pocket. So this catch 22 consistently consigns disabled people to poverty and prohibits them from pursuing forms of employment and work in the world that are really meaningful to them. So what would you like to see change uh, when it comes to PAS policies and practices um, that relates to this catch 22, but also transcends it? And do you see these changes happening anytime soon? Yeah, the answer is no. Um, <laughs> you know, I think as, as I've said throughout our conversation, these changes are gonna require political will and based on the founding ethos of, of the United States, it's just missing and it's sadly missing today. Um, and Fred um, is a 20 year old college student who I um, interviewed at, at the end of my project because I wanted to get the perspective of a young person. He has a severe disability since birth. He has used um, wheeled mobility uh, assistance. Um, and, uh, you know, he is a brilliant guy, though, and wants to be a physics professor, but, but he also wants to pay a living wage to his personal assistance. And I did calculations about what he might earn as, you know, a professor and what a living wage might be. And they were, you know, off the charts different from each other. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I asked all the personal assistants was how they could improve their job. And all the PAS workers I interviewed, with one or two exceptions, really loved their job, but they didn't love their pay. So in terms of policy changes, their recommendations had to do with wages, 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 you know, a living wage. And I think just like so many other areas in our society, the COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath have really, you know, upturned the rock that we knew that there were terrible things underneath, but it's really had those terrible things underneath the rock now on the surface. And we know that employers are looking for workers everywhere. And most PAS workers could find higher paying jobs elsewhere, just down the street, 
perhaps even with benefits like health insurance and paid even if limited holidays. But where does this leave consumers? Anxious and uncertain, especially for people with consumer direction, maintaining their PAS coverage can be a full-time job. And so I texted Michael before, you know, talking to you this afternoon, and I asked him if I could continue telling his story, and he said, go ahead. And let me just say that Michael often spends hours alone these days because of trouble finding reliable home health aides, HHAs. And so that means that Michael, who is now largely bedbound, is not being turned, thus raising risk to his skin integrity. And he's not getting his tube feedings. He's fed through a peg tube, thus risking his hydration and nutrition. And so day after day, I get these texts from Michael's. Nobody showed up today. I don't have anybody today, literally for hours. And so, um, you know, this is, this is a, a really big problem. And it's something that... Um, Biden tried to address in his Build Back Better legislation that came out last spring. It had dollars in it to fund home and community-based supports for the 820,000 people who are still on the Medicaid um, home and community-based services waiting list. But again, that's only Medicaid. We know nothing about what is happening to people needing PAS supports in states with restrictive HCBS coverage or those who do not have Medicaid. And the people who don't have Medicaid live in the shadows. We don't know how many there are or what their lives are like. So it's not a hopeful picture, I'm afraid. Thank you for that answer. It's, yeah, it's really a, a grave issue in many ways. And I think we're both really appreciative of the way that you're drawing attention to it. We hope that through this podcast, we can contribute our small piece, right, to continuing the work of advocacy here. I think as disability historians, we hope that history um, can help create change. I think many of us have that as kind of part of our grounding philosophy that by identifying perhaps the roots of injustice, we can then begin the process of uprooting them and creating change, right? I'm wondering if you think history has a role to play here. Um, you do trace some of it in your book. I'm curious if there's more that we as historians could or should be doing to help generate the sorts of changes that are evidently needed in this system. Your answers or thoughts here would be so welcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a historian at all, but I, I was able to and felt strongly about putting some of the history in the book because as I said, the problems that we have now directly trace to you know, the origins of our country. And I think that understanding the essential and strong links, especially to sexism and racism, helps us understand why this work has been devalued and disrespected and low wage. Um, the one piece that we haven't talked about, but I think is also a very strong historical root is the role of immigrants um, in our country. Um, Obviously, there are many immigrants working in personal assistance services in the gray market, i.e. not the official market, um, where they make private arrangements with employers, but there, this chance for exploitation is really real, especially for people who are undocumented. But looking at the demographics of our nation in terms of birth rates, um, 
of Native people, we are going to absolutely need immigrants um, to be able to support the home-based personal assistance services needs of an aging U.S. population in coming decades. Um, and so I think that if historians can contribute to understanding the very positive history of immigrants and how they become members of our society to get policymakers to realize that we're going to need this workforce in a selfish way to meet our own needs, but also to give them opportunities that then they can move on beyond um, personal assistance if they choose to do so. Um, that would be a really important thread of history that is essential, a story to tell. Thank you for that. A bit of a call to action, perhaps, for those of us who, who want to find some way to contribute um, through our profession as historians. So thank you so much for that. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Give you kind of the open stage to talk about. Yeah, we, we have. We have but you know and, and I don't want to talk about this more right now because it's a very dense and difficult history but I think the specifically history of Medicaid its association with poverty um, its fragmented waiver-based programs and the differences across states is a really critical history because trust me somebody in Minnesota is going to be getting very different supportive services than somebody in Mississippi or Alabama. And there's just a dense and long history there that I think also needs to be told. You know, the fact that Americans, depending on the state in which they happen to be living, are going to have very different experiences if they need home and community-based supports because of their disability. Yeah, several calls, calls to action for historians. Mm -hmm. Yes. So now that your book is out, what are you up to now? I know that you mentioned that your next project is also going to be an oral history. I'm wondering if you want to say a little bit more about that. So absolutely. So in terms of a professional hierarchy, if you will, so if we're very rich about this, I've kind of done things backwards. I've talked about the unlicensed people who I actually think are the most important people. I actually think that the personal assistants, the PAS workers are the most important people in supporting people with disabilities and living there in their home and homes and communities. But healthcare professionals do have some role. Um, you know, physicians and um, nurses, nurse practitioners, advanced practice um, uh, nurses and physician assistants. Um, and my current project, I actually started at the same time that I was doing this Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation project. I won't go into the lengthy history of why that is, but I started kind of on the side, just interviewing people um, in Boston who were still alive. You have to, you know, for people to be interviewable, they have to still be alive. But these are people who were associated with a demonstration program that Massachusetts Medicaid conducted back in 1992 to 1996. It was called Community Medical Alliance. And it was a small capitated, in other words, per member per month payment program that um, had as its two populations of focus, people with severe disabilities. So not just paraplegia, but quadriplegia 
and people with late stage age. This was before the highly active antiretroviral drugs were available. And so people who enrolled in this program who had late stage AIDS, um, half of them died within six months of getting into the program. So I just started interviewing everybody I could. I used snowball sampling, which is basically everybody who I interviewed, I asked, is there somebody else who I could interview? And Many of the people who were members at the time have since then passed away and are no longer here for me to talk to, um, but I was able to talk to conduct 85 interviews. And um, so I um, have had those interviews literally sitting around while I've been doing other stuff. I thought during the pandemic that I was going to have all this free time that I was going to be able to take a look into those 85 interviews under that I did for the Community Medical Alliance History Project. Um, but I have been very privileged and fortunate to get a Harvard Radcliffe Fellowship for the academic year 2022-23. Um, it started about a little less than a month ago. And so I'm hoping during this fellowship to be able to get really kind of deep into this texts. And there are some clues for me as to the lesson that I hope to take away from the Community Medical Alliance interviews. And that is that halfway through the demonstration program, Massachusetts Medicaid hired a group called the National Committee on Quality for Quality Assurance. And that is a group, NCQA, based in Washington, um, that had, was developed to look at managed care organizations. And they came to Boston and they interviewed people, patients and providers affiliated with, with CMA, Community Medical Alliance. And they came away saying, people love your program. <laughs> there is something going on here. They love your program. What are you doing? You need to figure out what that special sauce is, what that secret sauce is that makes this particular managed care program beloved by the people who are members of it. And so that is one of the things that I hope to unearth in going through the eight of five interviews that I've done. We cannot wait for this next project. It sounds so phenomenal, so necessary. And now of course, I'm curious about what, what that special sauce was. Um, and again, when we think about what constitutes a usable history, it's so evident from the conversation that we had today that we need more histories of care and care work um, that really try to get at this question of when care works well within a community, what is happening in terms of labor and payment and interpersonal exchange and how can we reproduce those conditions environmentally to ensure that more people can access the care that they need within their home communities and that the people who are caring for them and attending to them are being compensated for that labor. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Kelsey. And I apologize, I forgot to turn my cell phone to mute. And so you might've heard the little whistle um, a text message, that's Michael. That's my text tone from Michael. And I thought, let me read you the text that he just wrote. He said, wow, 
I have to take my Tylenol because my temperature has gone up to 100.9. He just had his COVID booster shot yesterday. I'm not worried about this. This is good. But you see what this is like for me 250 miles away that in a way I'm his caregiver. You know, so it's interesting how you can play a role, you know, even if you're not physically present with somebody um, in providing supports for them. It's really meaningful. I'm really glad you said that. I, I can absolutely understand from the perspective of politics and a fight for justice that many people want to kind of write the word care out of the equation because it has been so stigmatized and it's associated with forms of marginalization. But I also, in a way, hope one day we can get to a point where we can bring that back into the conversation in a way that is not stigmatizing and marginalizing, but empowering and about interdependence. And you've just illustrated that so beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. I wish that we could we could talk for hours more and hopefully um, the three of us will be able to talk again um, in another context. Uh, there's so much more to say and I know that our listeners will enjoy this conversation so much. Thank you for spending the evening with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.